get your degree from college? Yeah, wow. Um, so when you started like 
making your own internet companies? Like, did all these big name people just start coming to you asking for questions, or do you have to like start small and work your way up, or how did that work for you? I mean, you've always got to work your way up. I would say that for me, starting in in the movie industry, I was trained to think big because that industry basically you're given a product and unless it's a sequel which a lot of times it's not you have to create a brand from scratch in in just a few months and in creating that brand you can't think about how you're going to reach 10,000 or 100,000 or even like a million people you got to figure out how you reach 50 to 100 million people around the world in order to be successful with this product because it's such a huge investment and uh, you need to reach a critical scale to generate a profit so with that, I was trained always to think big because I could never go into a meeting and present an idea that was going to reach a small number of people. It had to reach a large number of people. And I think that really trained me to go after big ideas. And through those big ideas, it would attract bigger clients. Uh, and I'm really only interested, uh, because of those experiences, of, of how you can drive big results at at a large scale for a large client. That's what really fuels me. Yeah, and I think social media has like endless opportunities too that I think a lot of people don't realize, but I mean, you obviously did realize that. So um, what was it like working with like these huge people like Rihanna, Taylor Swift, Charles Barkley? Like, what was it like? I mean, to be honest, it's like working with anybody else. I mean, obviously they're on a completely different scale. They have a tremendous amount of success. And, and yeah, in the beginning, it's cool, new, and exciting. But once you get into it, it's like working with any other client. It's just you have specific goals and objectives that you have uh, set out to help them with, and you just put in the work to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean... Um, do you think that anyone can build a massive social media following by using your strategies mentioned in your book, One Million Followers? The answer, the quick answer is yes, you can. I would um, we've done it multiple times for, for different people. The real question that I always start out with before I work with anybody is why are you doing it? Like, what is this, what is the end goal? that you have in your mind, what is it that you're trying to achieve? Like if you if you reach that massive social audience, what does that do for your business or your brand? Because the the reason I start there is it's hard work. It's you know it takes time, it takes dedication, it takes a mindset of constantly learning and iterating because even when you get that social media following you have to keep it. And you have to keep innovating with your content, otherwise you'll lose that audience. So can anybody do it? Yes. I mean, we've done it multiple times with, with clients, but it comes down to why you're doing it and if you're really going to stick it out when, when things get difficult and you run into obstacles or roadblocks. Yeah. Um, for your account, your your uh, Instagram account, how many times a day do you post? So we don't, we're not big on like frequency. We're focused on quality over quantity. So, Okay. Right now we're just focusing on you know producing the best quality content. Like we're posting like twice, twice a week, and we haven't posted in like two weeks at this point because we've been working on a series of, of videos. So I'm not really a huge believer that 
frequency, especially when you're talking about Instagram, is a key component to grow. It's more about the quality of your content. Okay, yeah. I've heard so many different things, like three times a week, three times a day. I just, I just didn't know, but... Um, and listen, like, that's just a strategy that works for us. Like, I'm never going to sit here and say my, my way is the only way, and I think everybody says that is misleading. I just share kind of what works for us and our philosophies, but at the end of the day, you got to find what works for you and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and... When you were growing your Instagram account, like, I know you talk about in your book, like, testing and just keep on testing. Like, how many tests did you guys run to find, like, that that right advertisement that would bring more, like, more traffic through your account? So, there's, so for Instagram specifically, we did different types of testing than we did for Facebook. Facebook, we tested thousands thousands of variations of content. Uh, to really learn and experiment. Wow. And it sounds like a daunting task, but the system the system that we developed, like you could turn one piece of content into like 100, 200 variations in a matter of 20 or 30 minutes, and that's the system we break down in our in the book. Uh, Instagram is a little bit different. What we would do is we would, like the way to drive massive growth on Instagram is you have to syndicate content out onto other networks, or not, not networks, but other accounts, uh, other Instagram accounts to drive that traffic back. Uh, and what we would do is we have a partner that has three and a half million followers and we would test content on his channel to see which one has the highest conversion rate of driving followers back uh, to my channel or other channels that we work with. Okay. So then once we have that winning variation, then we will syndicate that out to a network of about 18 other accounts uh, to reach scale. So there, I think we tested maybe like 50 different pieces of content, but we're always constantly creating new content and testing new content for that because once you actually use a piece of content, it starts to become ineffective after it's reached the saturation point. Uh, so we're always constantly testing and looking for, for new content to, to drive follower growth. Huh. So, like, for all your tests, like, how much money did you spend per test, like, on average? Like, if someone wanted to do what you did, like, how much money would they be looking to, like, invest into this? It really depends. It depends on the quality of the content that you have. I think first and foremost, people generally ask me that question of like how much does it cost you to achieve that, but I always like to, to flip it on its head and say, well, what was my return on investment on it? Because yeah. different people have different ways of getting a return on investment of a following or a, a social digital strategy, and I prefer to focus on that because that's the most important question. Is if I were to say, uh, listen, I invested five thousand dollars to get a million followers, and my return on investment was fifteen dollars, versus I invested a hundred thousand dollars, and my return on investment was a million dollars. Like, well, which one would you take? Obviously, you're going to take the one where your return on investment is a million dollars. Yeah. And that's where the, the level of investment is really dictated based on what your business looks like and how you're going to make that money back. Uh, and with Instagram specifically, we we would just constantly optimize content to drive down the, the cost per follower. Uh, because, like, if you look at, like, for example, we have one partner that has 16 million followers on Instagram. Wow. And if you post one piece of content on their page, it'll only correlate to 200 followers back to an account. Versus if you have an optimized piece of content that's been tested and vetted, it could generate anywhere from, like, five to $10,000. Um, five to ten thousand followers 
back to an account. Uh, so that's, there's so many different little variables that go into play that dictate your cost. Now, there's also the approach that you could do and do it completely organic where you get other accounts to post your content for free because your content is just of the highest quality and it's going to engage their audience. And the better that you get at producing content, uh, the the less you're going to have to pay for any acquisition of an audience. Yeah. And so that's where typically how people have started, create the most compelling content that drives the most value, make a list of accounts that are currently reaching your audience, and work on getting them to post your content for free. Now, obviously, when you're reaching out to those accounts, you need to position it from a standpoint of value and how you're providing value to those accounts through your content. Uh, because if you just ask people to post your content, most of the time they're not. If they are willing to do it, they're going to charge you for it. Yeah. So I know that you mentioned in your book that, like, I think it was cost per click or something. It was like for Facebook, a good cost per click was like 50 cents. And like 30 cents was really good. And like, I think you were like five cents, which is extremely good. Is that the same for Instagram too? Well, that, that metric was for cost per share. Cost per, share. Cost per click. Uh, cost per click will vary based on the, based on the concept, but also, you know, cost per click heavily varies on what your, your cost per acquisition comes in that as well. Uh, because like a, like you could pay two dollars for cost per click, but if you're selling a you know two thousand dollar product and it's converting profitably for you, you may be willing to pay ten dollars a click. It just it just depends. So cost per click varies on the, the financial metrics of your business or the product you're selling. But that was those metrics were around the cost per share. Instagram, we don't really look at cost per share because it's not built based on a on a sharing platform. Um, you know. If we're running uh, advertising on Instagram, we're either doing it in the form of shout-outs and other accounts to drive traffic back and drive followers, or we're doing more direct response marketing through advertisements on the on the uh, uh, through our accounts, but that's focused on more conversion-based metrics, and those metrics vary based on the, the actual financial model of the business. Okay. Um, you keep on mentioning like or, like growing your account organically. Does that just mean not spending money to grow your account? Yeah, that, I mean that's the definition of people. And the, the reality of the situation is you're always spending money, uh, even if you're not paying for advertising or placement. You are spending money on content, whether that is hiring an editor or even the equipment that you are uh, using or investing in some way. So I don't believe in this concept of, you know, 100% organic. Like, there is no real 100% organic because you're always making an, making an investment somewhat, but that's a term that people kind of know and, and, and resonate with. Okay, yeah. Um, so what do you define as, like, great content for, like, Instagram and Facebook? To me, it's content that, well, there's two parts of it. First off, it's, Content that plays to the algorithms and understanding the algorithms so the algorithms will give you reach. Because without the algorithm giving you reach, you're not gonna you're not gonna get any people to see your content. So that's first and foremost. And secondarily is once you get that reach, are people engaging with that content? Are they performing the intended action that you're looking for? Uh, so for Facebook, you know, one of the key metrics is shares. 
with Instagram, it's, it's likes and comments and, and view-through rate and views-to-reach ratio. Uh, so it's really content, at the end of the day, a great piece of content uh, uh, serves, first and foremost, serves your end goal, whether that is generating followers, generating engagement, generating leads, generating traffic, generating sales, because uh, it has to, first and foremost, deliver on, on the business goal or objective that you set out to hit, and then secondarily getting people to engage with that content in a meaningful way, and that, engage, that form of engagement differs uh, from platform to platform. Okay. So, if someone like me, or like any other normal person, doesn't have like a ton of followers, like if they wanted to grow their account, like mainly organically, would you recommend just having great content and then reaching out to these huge accounts and then telling them to like repost your stuff and like telling them why it would give them value as well? Yeah, that's what I would do, but I would remove the word telling them. You gotta work with them, you gotta collaborate with them, you gotta figure out how you can provide the most value to them uh, through your content or through some other means. What I always tell people is that if you're just starting out, go where the traffic is. Uh, don't try and create it from scratch. Uh, and just give you an analogy of that, the, the way that YouTube was sold for, for just under $2 billion in, in a few years is they actually funneled all of MySpace's traffic. So before, when YouTube was created, MySpace didn't have a video player. So YouTube created one of the first embeddable video players, and they got MySpace profile to embed their YouTube players into their profile. And then when somebody's friends saw that you had a YouTube player, you wanted one as well. So you clicked the YouTube logo, went to YouTube, got your own, and then that process repeated over and over again. And that's where their scale came from. So the same thing applies here is, if you're trying to build a social audience, you're trying to build a social brand, how can you get your content, your brand, in front of as many people, people as possible? And one of the best ways to do that is by identifying uh, accounts that are reaching the audience that you want to and, and finding strategic ways to get them to place your content. Uh, and that could be done in a number of different ways. Maybe you are a musician, so you offer an account the ability to use your music. Maybe you create really inspiring content and uh, an account posts inspiring content so they want that content to engage their audience. It's just finding creative and unique ways to separate yourself from the, from the crowd uh, so that these accounts will post on your behalf. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I know you also mentioned in your book, like if you like post and add on Facebook. I mean, not like your your normal following group doesn't have to see it every time, correct? No. So you can what, when you create an advertisement on Facebook or Instagram, what happens is a dark post is created, and this all happens automatically when you create an advertisement. What a dark post means is that it doesn't get posted to your timeline. It doesn't get posted to your main feed, and within the in creating that ad, you can control who that ad is distributed to. You can control every element. You can control the geolocation down to the zip code, the age and gender, uh, what, they, what they're interested in, what the products and services they buy, what the media they consume. And you can also control whether it is being sent to your followers uh, 
you can say, I want it to go to my followers, I don't want it to go to my followers, you can say, I want it to go to friends of my followers. So all of these elements are controlled uh, at your, that you can control in terms of creating your campaigns and tests. Okay, so, so Instagram does work the same way as Facebook in that uh, aspect? Yeah, it's the same. So basically the fa- Facebook advertising platform powers both Facebook and Instagram. It also powers Messenger and will eventually power WhatsApp as well. Okay. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that, but that's, that's super cool. Um, you also talk about advertising abroad and how important it is. Why, like, why is it? more important to advertise like abroad more than just like staying locally all the time with your advertisements? So it depends on, on what your brand is and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, I'll just say entertainment, for example. Uh, in, in entertainment, is very important. Like we talk about the movie industry, 60 to 70% of uh, movie box office is happening inter- internationally versus here domestically. You will see movies that literally are saved because of the international box office versus domestic. So if you want to do a cool experiment, go to uh, boxofficemojo.com and start looking at all the top grossing movies and look at the percentage of box office that's generated internationally versus domestically. And that's why you see a lot of uh, Chinese stars uh, starting to be appearing in big movies. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, Indian stars being brought into movies and television shows uh, because there's such a huge reach. So if you are a musician, if you're an actor, if you're a singer, if you're a comedian or a uh, an author, someplace that really the geolocation does, it doesn't have to be in a specific zip code, like a small business, it doesn't make sense to do that. Or a business that can only ship domestically or to a specific state or city, it doesn't make sense. But for, for people that can benefit from a worldwide brand uh, that can help them get a publishing deal, a record deal, more acting gigs, uh, selling more concert tickets, whatever that may be on the entertainment side, then yeah, it makes a, a huge difference because there's very little competition. There's so much scale that you can reach a tremendous amount of people all around the world for, for a nominal cost. Yeah. <laughs> I love in your book too that you mentioned that like the uh, the whole like like Asian population like you mentioned like they are real people and they do have real accounts and like it's it counts as the same as like like an American follower too like it's just it's just the same and you can do it for a lot less money too, which is awesome. Look, but... you look at, if you look at the smartest people on the planet right now, like where they're investing their money in India, India is the world the second world largest largest population. There's one point three billion people there. They say in five years it'll be the world's largest population. And Facebook and Instagram's largest audience is in India. Uh, so that's where Mark Zuckerberg and, and Facebook are investing a tremendous amount in that place. I'm doing some work with IKEA. They're investing two and a half billion dollars over the next 15 years. Uh, they're building up stores like Tesla's going after that market. If you look at Google and those crazy stories about putting hot air balloons into the air, like they're doing that for Africa. Uh, in, in other parts of the world that are not connected to the internet because few people realize that about three and a half billion people are still not connected to the internet. For these companies that have reached critical scale and critical mass, that's really the best big opportunity. So any company that has reached a saturation point 
uh, in the U.S., Canada, or the U.K., like they're looking at where the other opportunities. So that's where you you see Apple, a company like an Apple or a Nike or Adidas or a Coke or a Pepsi uh, looking to break into those markets because there's so much scale there. You look at WhatsApp, and I forget what the exact acquisition cost was. I think it was like 16 or $17 billion wow. that Facebook acquired them for. That's what they did, is they focused on emerging markets and markets that didn't uh, have a saturation point with social media. And that was the main reason that Facebook acquired them, is because they had saturation and users in places that they hadn't built up yet. And that's what made them so valuable. If all of their user base was just like in the Facebook UK and Canada, sure, it would, been, it would have been valuable, but it wouldn't have been as valuable to Facebook, which is looking to really dominate from a, a worldwide perspective. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I kind of want to switch gears here for a little bit and talk about like like the entrepreneur lifestyle. Um, like, what is one of your like most difficult challenges of being an entrepreneur? Well, being an entrepreneur, first off, you gotta really know if you're cut out for it. A lot of people aren't cut out for it. They they're they're better suited for a nine to five job or working for a company with with that uh, that regular uh, guidance and structure. Uh, so it's really first and foremost knowing whether you're cut out for it. Me, I'm not cut out for a 9-to-5 job. I can't work in that type environment. It's just not suited for me. I'm constantly wanting to learn and experiment and try new things. And what I will say is you'll have the highest highs and the lowest lows as an entrepreneur. It, it is truly free and really fun and creative. At the same time, it's really hard. Because being an entrepreneur, you're responsible for your schedule. You're responsible for the income and the revenue coming in. And it can be hard, you know, especially when you're starting out, being put into a position where you have to figure out how to keep the lights on. And if you have employees, you, you become responsible for them. Uh, so that, that can be challenging and, and, and a bit of a struggle to create things from scratch and just figure out ways to make it work for yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely believe in everything you just said, and it's, it's impressive to see people like you that have chosen this lifestyle. I mean, like even the risk that you took and just like moving to LA, even though you had your, your um, film degree and you don't even use that, but I mean, you're still really successful in what you do. And I'm just curious, um, what's, what's your daily schedule look like? So my daily schedule is I'm up by like six, usually by like six, 6.15 a.m. Uh, I will start off by journaling and meditating just to kind of fill the day off right. And then from there, I'll dive directly into either emails or proposals or more of the difficult path that take a lot of creative energy. I'll start with that for like the first two hours. And then I will get into calls and meetings. I typically like to structure everything as much as possible uh, with calls uh, because meetings, you have to typically jump in the car and go to some place to meet people. It takes a lot of time out of the day and takes a lot of energy. So I, I try and do as much uh, via you know, web conference or calls, and then sometimes you just have to go uh, to meet people in person. And, and then towards the middle of the day, I'll try and get some type of workout in, and I wrap typically around like six or seven and then just try and relax and, and catch up on, on some energy and just spend time with friends or things like that. And then I get to bed pretty early. 
Okay. Um, I, a lot of people that I've talked to on my podcast have said that they meditate like early in the morning, like you just said. I mean, like what what does meditation do for you that you think? It's very grounding. It's, it helps you deal with a lot of stress and anxiety. I choose to do it in the morning because if you do it first thing, it doesn't get it doesn't get pushed aside. If you try and schedule it for the middle of the day or the end of the day, oftentimes your schedule can get in the way and then you push it aside and you don't get it done versus if you schedule it first thing in the morning and you typically always get it in. But what it does for me and I think what it does for a lot of people is it it gives you the ability to deal with stress and anxiety in a much healthier way. And living a life of an entrepreneur is something you need to figure out how to deal with uh, because it, it can be a very stressful environment. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so are you a, a huge believer in, like, in order to become successful, I mean, you got to get up at, like, 4 o'clock in the morning and just grind all day, go to bed at, like, midnight? No, no I don't believe in that. It's working smart. It's working smart. It's working on the right thing. So people are not cut out to wake up early in the morning. Every person is different. I, I, I have friends and partners that they've all made money and had success in different ways. There's the beauty of the internet today is you can be successful doing anything. And also, your definition of success should be true to who you are and what you want to achieve. You don't benchmark yourself against other people. So no, I don't believe that you have to grind it out doing those crazy hours. Do you have to put in work? Yeah, sure. You have to put in work. You have to learn. You have to figure out how you're going to generate revenue and support the lifestyle that you want. But I don't I don't believe that you have to work 18-hour days in order to make that happen. And frankly, I don't think it's, it's healthy for the long run. Now, if you really love that and you want to do that, go for it. I don't think it's a requirement. Okay, yeah. I think that's so awesome to hear because I know a lot of people, they do say like you got to put in those long hours and I think it, it just burns a lot of people out and like they they think they're like, oh man, I can't do this now, but I think I totally agree with you on that. Um, before we run out of time, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Well, I think that's, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, definitely. Alright, well, there you have it, guys. Brendan Kane and Mr. Kane, thank you so much for joining me today. For sure, thanks for having me. No way that we go is a one-way street. Nothing that we owe is a one-day key And if we gon' do it, we gon' do this now And if we say we gonna, we gon' hold this down No way that we go is a one-way street Nothing that we love is a one-day key And if we gon' do it, we gon' do this now And if we say we gonna